I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'd like to read a section of the chapter beginning in verse 8. Down to verse 17. Do I have it here? I'm in the wrong chapter. Back up one more. Okay. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpeh and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpeh and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued. And they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coasts thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpeh and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. And there he judged Israel. And there he built an altar unto the Lord. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Let's seek the Lord in prayer before we consider this passage. O Lord, we do ask of thee now to speak to our hearts through thy word. Give us understanding as to its meaning. Give us understanding as to how it applies to our lives. And we pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt equip us for this new week into which we've entered. May we be ever watchful for opportunities to speak a word for Christ. May we stand true to our Savior, come what may in this present evil world. And we ask, O Lord, that as we go from Thy house, that the joy of salvation would be our strength, and that the peace of God that passes understanding will be our portion, and that Thou wilt help us by Thy Spirit to maintain close communion with Thee. 
So hear us now, Lord, in these closing moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 12, we read a familiar statement that Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpeh and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Taking stones and placing them as memorials in some conspicuous place has long been the practice of men throughout the history of civilization. Besides the example of Samuel that we read of in this chapter, we find other examples in Scripture of this kind of practice. Most notable, perhaps, was Jacob in the book of Genesis for this kind of thing. Jacob would take a stone and pour oil upon it to commemorate the place and the occasion of the Lord meeting him in a vision of the night and promising to bless him. That's in Genesis 28 and verse 18. We find him doing the same thing in Genesis 31, where he piles up a heap of stones to mark the occasion of his meeting with Laban. That heap of stones was to function as a witness to a covenant between Jacob and Laban that neither one of them would pass that marker to do harm to the other. And then you may recall how Joshua, after crossing the Jordan River with the Israelites, took 12 stones out of the river Jordan, made a heap of stones on the dry land, and then he took the same number of stones from the dry land and piled them up in the Jordan River. This was to commemorate the occasion of the children of Israel passing over the Jordan River on dry ground. It would seem then that there would have been a number of historical markers throughout Israel to mark the places where God did unusual things for his people, meeting with them in unusual ways, or doing for them unusual things. And in the portion we've read, the occasion is a great victory that the Lord wrought for his people against the Philistines. This memorial stone, however, commemorated something more far-reaching than just the victory of that day. Samuel assigns a name to this stone, the name Ebenezer. It means the stone of help. And in a statement that one might argue referred not merely to the victory of that day, but in fact spanned the entire history of the Israelites, Samuel would explain the meaning of the name Ebenezer and why he was assigning that name to that stone. The reason being, in Samuel's words, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. What a far-reaching statement that is. Hitherto, up to this point in time, you could say, hath the Lord helped us. The statement could be applied to the days when they were slaves in Egypt. At the time Pharaoh tried to diminish them through fear of them, the Lord multiplied them. He helped them. 
And when it came time to leave Egypt, what tremendous help the Lord provided, working wonders in their midst and bringing them out of Egypt with a stretched out arm. He helped them when he opened the Red Sea before them. He helped them when he provided manna for them in the wilderness. He helped them when he brought forth water out of the rock. He helped them during their days of their wilderness wanderings, and he helped them cross Jordan to at last take the land that was promised to them. He helped them throughout the days of the judges, commanding deliverances for them on numerous occasions. You begin to see then how far-reaching Samuel's statement would be, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Or in other words, up to this point in their history, the Lord helped them every step of the way by protecting them and providing for them. There had been many victories, as well as a number of defeats. But through them all, through the ups and downs of their experiences, the testimony could be raised that the Lord had been faithful he had been their help. When you consider Samuel's action on this occasion, I think you could draw the application that it's a good practice for us as Christians to raise our Ebenezers, as it were. And for the same reason, the Lord has been our help. Though there have been advances and setbacks, Though there have been high times and low times, through them all, the Lord has been faithful to his people and provided the help that they needed. We are able, therefore, to raise our Ebenezers on a personal level or on a family level. I think we could say, as a church, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. As a nation, we can bear such a testimony on a national level. There is at least, one, uh, at least once an instance where a stone has been designated for as, as such a marker. It's an appropriate stone for us to remember during this upcoming season of Thanksgiving. Plymouth Rock, according to historical tradition, is the place where the pilgrims allegedly first stepped foot on this continent. 154 years after the pilgrim landed, in the year 1774, two years before our Declaration of Independence, that stone was elevated from its bed by a large number of the inhabitants of the land by means of 20 yoke of oxen. The stone actually broke into two parts during that project. The top half was removed to a specially designated spot, while the bottom half was allowed to fall back into the bed from which it had been dug up. Years later, a canopy would be built above that location, and the top half of the stone would be joined to the bottom half, and the date 1620 would be carved into it. We have come to this rock, Daniel Webster would say in 1820, to record here our homage for our pilgrim fathers, our sympathy in their sufferings, our gratitude for their labors, 
our admiration of their virtues, our veneration for their piety, and our attachment to those principles of civil and religious liberty for which they encountered the dangers of the ocean, the storms of heaven, the violence of savages, disease, exile, and famine to enjoy and establish. That quote graphically illustrates for us the purpose behind placing a stone as a memorial. It serves as a means for reflection and rededication. It enables a people to take stock of where they've been, where they are now, what corrections may be needed, and where we need to be headed. It provides occasion for self-examination as well as thanksgiving. Now such a memorial need not be a stone. It can be something as simple as a date written on a flyleaf of your Bible, perhaps designated the time you found Christ as your Savior. Or it may be a plaque, such as the one in the hall of this building designating the date that this church was officially constituted. Or maybe it's a book you were awarded as a child in a Sunday school class which contains a note of congratulations and encouragement from a Sunday school teacher. It can basically be anything that will provide occasion to pause and reflect and lift your heart to God in thanksgiving. On a personal level, it doesn't really even have to be anything that's tangible. It can be a memory that's stamped indelibly on your mind and on your heart. Well, in our text, there was a stone, a stone named in order to commemorate the blessed truth that God had been faithful. Raising our Ebenezer's then means taking the time to reflect on the glorious truth that God has been good to us. That means meditating on the blessings of God in such a way that we're moved to confess that God has been with us and that God is for us. It's good for us, therefore, to take the time to raise our Ebenezer's. And what I'd like to consider in these remaining moments is a couple of answers to the question, why? Why we must raise our Ebenezer's. Consider, first of all, we must raise our Ebenezer's so we'll remember God's intervention in the past. This is the specific occasion that gave rise to Samuel raising that Ebenezer. In the first part of this chapter, we have the account of how a long period ensued in which the Israelites were lamenting after the Lord. Now, following that prolonged season of spiritual decadence, the Lord had began to move. And so we have the account in the first half of this chapter of a revival that came to the Israelites. At long last, they were humble before God. They were confessing their sins. They were earnestly seeking Christ with all their hearts. And their earnestness was marked by their willingness to put away their idols and serve the Lord alone. 
While they were gathered in the spiritual exercise, the Philistines came together in order to mount an attack against them. We might well imagine the anxious thoughts that went through their minds when they perceived the danger they were now facing. Were they being visited for their iniquities? Would God judge them for the sins they were now confessing? They knew that for years they had been spiritually cold and dead. They knew that for years their religion had been in a sad and sorry state of decline. Who could blame God for visiting their iniquities upon them? Many of them perhaps wondered. But at the precise moment when all seemed to be lost, when their situation was helpless and hopeless, at that very moment, God intervened by thundering upon the Philistines and discomfiting them. And so we read in verse 10 of chapter 7, And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. Oh, what great grace this was! How unexpected this intervention proved to be! What began as a spiritual exercise in seeking the Lord ended up being, I suppose, sort of a military exercise as we read in verse 11, that the men of Israel went out to Mizpeh and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. This was the kind of intervention that was traceable to God alone. There was no trace of man's hand in that deliverance. The Israelites had not gathered in order to plan a military strategy against the Philistines. Quite possible that they weren't even armed. So there's simply no way that anybody who was present on that occasion could attribute this event to the brilliance of military planning or the wisdom and leadership of Samuel. This was God's hand and God's hand alone. And so the stone is rightly named Ebenezer on the basis that it was the Lord alone who helped the Israelites on that day. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us the way he had done on numerous occasions in the past. Now there is a sense in which the cross of Christ is the Ebenezer to any true child of God. For at the cross we discover divine intervention against our helpless and hopeless condition. What could we have done to save ourselves? Our own sins surrounded us, one might argue, the way the Philistines did the Israelites. And they testify to our guilt. They scream at us and they shout to God that we're guilty and we're worthy to be damned. And what do we possess against such a massive amount of sin? There's nothing we can do. We're not qualified to offer anything to God. We're too defiled. There's no way we can offset or overcome such guilt. And our mouths are stopped because we are guilty of many sins. But God intervened. At the very time we ought to be damned, God sent help by sending his Son. 
and the thundering of God was unleashed upon Christ. And at the very same time, our sins were imputed to Christ. So we can say that God thundered against our sins when he thundered against his son. And what a great victory was gained at Calvary's cross through divine intervention. Our uh, redemption was accomplished. But we can raise our Ebenezer's in another way. With regard to our experience of Christ. You see, in spite of what Christ accomplished at the cross, we had no interest in that accomplishment. We were altogether in bondage to our sins. We loved the darkness rather than the light. We were on the broad road leading to destruction, and we were so in love with our sins that we would have hugged them all the way to hell were it not for divine intervention. Oh, the cross of Christ was repulsive to us. Why in the world would we want anything to do with a man who died such an ignominious death? Beyond feeling sorry for a victim of cruelty, we would have had no interest in the man Christ Jesus. We would certainly not make a victim of cruelty the primary object of our worship, but then God intervened in our lives with power and with grace. The Holy Spirit bore witness to our hearts concerning the truth of our lost condition and the gracious provision Christ made for our condition in sending his Son. We were called to Christ. You were effectually called. I love the definition for effectual calling in our shorter catechism. We devoted a study to this not terribly long ago. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery. Let me pause there just to point out the irony of it. Having to be convinced of our sin and misery. But the Spirit did it convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. Oh, what gracious power. I can describe effectual calling even more concisely by calling it this, divine intervention. And so we raise our Ebenezer's by recalling Christ's atoning death. In that death, God supplied help for our lost estate. And we raise our Ebenezer's by calling to mind the day we met Christ at the cross. That was a day of divine intervention in which our blind eyes were opened, our deaf ears were unstopped, our rebellious hearts were overcome, and we were convicted of our sins and became convinced of Christ, and we became trophies of grace on that day. And in the days that have followed, You've undoubtedly known times of trial, seasons of despair and discouragement. There have undoubtedly been times when you've wondered whether or not God is for you. 
Like the psalmist, you've cried out in your heart, is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And then the Lord providentially intervenes to turn your mourning into dancing. The clouds of gloom disperse, and the sunshine of his favor breaks upon your soul again. Things that you never imagined were possible happen in the providence of God, and you're moved to confess yet again, hitherto hath the Lord helped me. Oh, let this be the spiritual exercise that you engage in this week. Think of the ways you have known the favor of God's intervention during the years that you've walked with the Lord. How many blessings have come your way that you never thought would have come your way. Think on those times when you couldn't see the way forward and then God intervened and opened the door. Think on the ways in which you nearly acted foolishly and then God intervened and closed the door. I dare say it won't be long before you're moved to testify. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And so we must raise our Ebenezer's in order to recall the times of God's intervention. Consider with me next and finally, we must raise our Ebenezer's so we can anticipate God's intervention in the future. We can anticipate this intervention in the future. I made reference earlier to a gathering around Plymouth Rock, on which occasion Daniel Webster paid tribute to our pilgrim forefathers. That event illustrates for us the purpose that historical markers are supposed to serve. It was a time of reflection and thanksgiving and consecration Picture the scene some 20 to 30 years later than the narrative we've read now in 1 Samuel 7. You might see an elderly man and his young son stand in an open field between Mizpeh and Shen before this stone that Samuel named Ebenezer. The elderly man would have been a young man in his prime at the time this stone was made in historical marker. His son wouldn't have been born yet. Now as they stand before that stone, father and son, the son wants to know, and so he asks his father, what does it mean, this stone with this name? And so the father tells his son the story of that day, how the children of Israel were seeking God with great fervency and contrition, putting away their idols, confessing their sins, pouring out water before the Lord as acts of their repentance and pledged to follow wholly after the Lord. When quite unexpectedly, the Philistines drew near to attack them. The Lord thundered upon the Philistines, the father tells his son. And that day a great victory was wrought in Israel. Oh, the men of Israel must have been very brave, the son suggests, in order to gain such a great victory over the Philistines. On the contrary, the father says to his son, we were helpless and hopeless. 
We were unarmed. There wasn't a thing we could do, but God intervened to give us the victory of that day. Then God must have been impressed with the men of Israel, how serious they were in seeking him, the child suggests. Not at all, the father replies. We knew all too well that we didn't deserve a thing from God. For years, we had been guilty of idolatry. For years, our allegiance to God was half-hearted at best. For years, we had been sinners. And now, at long last, we were confessing our sins and repenting of them. Well, why then did God intervene in such a marvelous way? The child would want to know. If you deserve nothing from God, then why was God pleased to give you such an impressive victory? To which the father might reply, You don't know how often, son, I've asked myself the same question. But here's a very interesting thing that might give you a clue. It was at the exact same moment that the prophet Samuel offered a burnt offering holy unto the Lord, that the Philistines drew near to battle. I believe the reason that God intervened that day had more to do with that sacrifice than it had to do with any action on our part of faith and contrition. In following such a discussion, an elderly man and his son would gaze at that stone with their hearts lifted to heaven and the thought engraved in their mind that God is great. Well, I know this is only an imaginary scene I've just described, but it does illustrate the purpose that those monuments were to serve. We know now, of course, thousands of years later, with the completed canon of Scripture, that the sacrifice had everything to do with God intervening that day. We know with greater fullness and clarity what the Israelites would have known only slightly by comparison. In other words, that the sacrifice points us to Christ. It was on the grounds of his atoning death that God intervened on that day. It is always on the grounds of that same atoning death that we are taught to anticipate that God will move with power and might again. And so we're taught to anticipate in our day that God will move with power and might again. He's done it in the past. And for that reason, we can anticipate that he'll do it in the future. Why? Because we're worthy. Because he'll be impressed with us. Because our level of spirituality will rise high enough to impress him. Oh, no. We can anticipate that he'll move with power and might again because the grounds upon which he moved in the past is the same today as it was then. Now, it is certainly our duty to do as the Israelites of that day did. We need to examine our hearts. We do need to put away those things that come between us and our God. We do need to seek him fervently. We do need to plead the merits of the sacrifice of Christ for God to do in our day what he did in the days of Samuel. Oh, how we need to see God move with power and might and grace again in our day. 
What cause we have to fear for our children if this nation continues down the pathway of sin and compromise and apostasy and moral perversity? Does it seem to be a far-fetched ideal for God to move in such a way again? I dare say that if we visit this stone, this Ebenezer that Samuel raised, and reflect on the numerous ways in which God has shown himself powerful and gracious on our behalf, and call to mind that the grounds for any and every blessing that any child of God in any generation has received has always been the merits of Christ's life and death, then we'll be taught to anticipate that God will move with grace and power and blessing yet again. What is it to raise our Ebenezers? It means to reflect on God's intervention in the past, and it means to reflect with the aim of anticipating that God will yet move again in the future. So long as the grounds for God's intervention remains the same, then we have every right to anticipate that what God has done, God will yet do. Indeed, we can expect that the best is yet to come. If I could visit that stone between Mizpeh and Shen and inscribe a testimony in it, I would inscribe the words of 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, which speaking of Christ says, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver and whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Doesn't that provide that verse, provide a great Ebenezer for us to raise this week? Oh, may the Lord indeed help us during this time of thanksgiving to raise our Ebenezer's and to reflect how hitherto the Lord hath indeed helped us. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, we do indeed offer to thee praise and thanks for so great grace and so great love and mercy and salvation. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, for accomplishing it by thine atoning death. We thank thee, blessed Spirit of God, for applying it to our hearts, opening our eyes to the truth and reality of it, and enabling us to gain a saving interest in Christ. O Lord, we do pray that thou wilt help us in the days ahead especially as we come upon this day that is marked as a day of thanksgiving. May we contemplate, O Lord, how bountifully blessed we are and how the grounds for those blessings has not changed, which enables us to expect that thou wilt be our abiding portion yet again in future days. So, Lord, hear our prayers and take our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.